0: Good morning, my name is Doug, and I'm an adult child of an alcoholic, and lots of other things, and that's what I want to talk about today. Um, My father is an alcoholic. My grandfather died of alcoholism in a car accident. They said it was the bridge post that killed him. He was driving under the influence. My mother is a nicotine addict. I have a sister who's a compulsive overeater. I have a niece who's a recovering alcoholic for the last two years. Um, that's just the start um, of what goes on in my family. I have a mother who's, I believe, seriously mentally ill. I don't know what you call that. Um, what I wanted to talk about this morning was what I went through the last month of my life. Because I'm really proud of what I went through the last month of my life. And I think it's why these programs exist and why I got started six some years ago. Um, identifying myself as a child of an alcoholic first through Al-Anon and then there wasn't ACA meetings then. And then I went to an Al-Anon meeting and they talked about these things called ACA meetings and there was only one in town and it was at a church in University City. And uh, I went to the meeting it was like after the fifth or sixth week the meeting even was going on and it was the first one in town. And now think of this, it's six years later now you have conventions where hundreds and hundreds of people come and this movement's all over the country. Um... If God isn't in charge of this program, I don't know who is. Um, the last month of my life, I went home to Minnesota, where my family lives. Somebody said Raquel was here last night. talking about Minnesota. It's the land of codependency. Uh, I think when it's that cold, you have no other choice but to sit inside and have no boundaries. Uh, anyways, um, that's where I'm from. And I, I grew up in Minnesota and came out to San Diego 10 years ago to get away from my sick family and to face myself. I didn't know that at the time, but now I do. Um, And I went home to Minnesota for Christmas for the first time in 10 years since I moved to San Diego. Um, My father is still a practicing alcoholic and most of my family is still in denial about the illness that goes on in my family, except my wonderful sister and her two children. Um, And I went home to Minnesota for Christmas. I was scared. I was really scared because I thought everything I learned in this program in my recovery was going to go right down the tubes the minute I got off the airplane. And uh, it didn't. Um, the first time I knew I was up against some real problems, however, was Christmas Eve. With my, uh, It was the first time the whole family was together, Christmas Eve. All the brothers and sisters, the nieces and nephews, there was like 20 of us in a room, <laughs> Christmas Eve. And it's the first time we'd all been together in 10 years. And in my family, the pressure to make that the most meaningful experience in the world is incredible. And everybody walks in like we all love each other and we all just can't wait that we're going to have this wonderful evening together. And you can just see the smiles frozen on people's faces. And, it, and um, it's, it's so phony. That's, I guess, what uh, is so painful to see because it, it's very phony and yet at the same time, I want so much for that not to be phony, um, but it's hard to see it. So it's Christmas Eve, we're all together, we all have this wonderful dinner, and then it's time to, we open gifts on Christmas Eve, so we open gifts in my family, and it's time to open the gifts, but before we open the gifts, it's picture taking time. And so they want to get a picture of all the nieces and nephews together. And uh, there's like nine of them, ages in range from 19 to two months old, and they've you know, throw them by the tree and like want them to all sit there perfectly. Now, all the presents are under the tree, mind you. These kids are going nuts because they can't open the gifts, and yet the parents are all making all these kids sit still and be good for a picture. And they're misbehaving, and they don't want to sit there. And I hear all my brothers and sisters. I don't have any children. I hear all my brothers and sisters saying, "Sit still, do this," and they're yelling at them, and they're and they and they're saying, "You know, you sit still," and all this sort of stuff. And this is Christmas Eve fun. You know, you're supposed to really enjoy yourself. And I couldn't stand it any longer, so I had to start making some jokes. And I, and I was watching them yell at my, my nieces and nephews, and I looked at all of them and I said, Come on, kids, this is Christmas. Have a good time. And my brothers and sisters looked at me like I wasn't being real helpful. Um, but what, what I began seeing was what I was there all the time in my family, and that's that this event is supposed to be about kids, yet this picture-taking thing was really all for the adults. It was that whole picture-taking Dilemma was that those parents could get a nice picture of their kids, not that that was a meaningful experience for the kids. Um, and that's what I began seeing the whole time I was home for Christmas, was how that pattern and that way of living is so deep in my family that it's, it's painful to watch. And what I realized in my recovery and, and being out of my own denial about my family. Is that now my recovery is about having to watch all of that abuse and neglect and the family generation of adult self-centeredness being the focus of the family and not children. And, and there's times when I wish I was back in denial and didn't see all that. Because it was a very it's very it's very painful for me. And I have this yearning to want to go and fix <sighs> All these kids, and that's when I have to work my program, because now my program's about having to let that be. I can't control that. It, 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 it gets better. Then after the picture taking, it was time to open gifts. My brother, who is uh, five years older than me, announces right before we open gifts that him and his wife and three kids are leaving. And the reason they're leaving is that he didn't do well this year financially in his business and couldn't afford to buy gifts for all of the other nieces and nephews in the family. And he didn't want his kids to sit there and uh, have to watch other kids open. No, it wasn't that. that wasn't it. He, he felt embarrassed that he couldn't have given gifts to the nieces and nephews. and So he didn't want to be there when they were opening gifts. So he made his children and his new wife and himself leave and not stay to open gifts. Now, there was an hour when he, when he announced this and there was this hour scene of uh, um, bargaining in the bedrooms. I don't know if you, this goes on in your family. People uh, go to different rooms. and like, oh, can't you stay? Can't you stay? And, and oh, do this. And then my mother hugging and then the, the nieces and nephews hugging each other and everybody's upset that, oh, poor George and his family has to leave. And this whole scene went on for like an hour. And I just sat there in shock. I, I couldn't believe... What I saw, that it was Christmas Eve and and this whole drama was going on. And and, and even my little seven-year-old nephew, Matthew, God bless his soul, he walked up to me and he said, well, if Uncle George wants a gift, I'll let him open one of mine. I mean, even he got it. How nuts this was that he was leaving. After an hour, they left the kids didn't even know he was going to do this they were like why is this happening you know. Was... and then what was really spooky was then the whole family sat around and opened gifts and acted like this didn't happen I mean like within five minutes we were all sitting around in our circle talking about who's going to hand out the gifts I couldn't believe how good my family was and how good we all were at like putting that all away. I mean, we all should have sat around and cried for like five hours, <laughs> what we should have done, you know? But denial clicks in in my family in ways so quick. I just was, I couldn't believe it. And I was so shocked. I, I just sat there trying to think, okay, now what do I do? Part of me wanted to like leave. It was so awful. Part of me wanted to tell everybody, don't you see how nuts this is? But what I had to realize and what my recovery is about is that I live in a family full of denial. And when I go see them, I'm visiting denial. And so it's like I have to, I have to take very, very good care of myself and stop taking care of them. Because that's what I used to always do. When all that stuff would go on, my role in the family was to take care of everybody and try to fix it. And I was in so much pain, I hurt so much to see that that's, that's, that's my family. That's who they are. That's from whence I come. That it was, it was enough for me to just take care of how painful that was. That was Christmas Eve. The rest of the week, I spent time... And I broke a very important family rule, I realized. I spent time with all my nieces and nephews. I didn't spend time with my brothers and sisters who were in denial. I took all of my nieces and nephews on separate little trips, places, because I wanted to have relationships with them. I don't know them very well. And through that process of like taking a nephew to a play or taking nieces and nephews skiing and stuff like that and not including their parents, I realized I broke a very important family rule. And that rule is, is the way you have access to the children is through their parents. You, do, you, you are not to have relationships with the children separate from relationships with, the, with my brothers and sisters. The anger that I got thrown at me for taking my nieces and nephews on doing things without including their parents was incredible. I was rejected. I was, um, I was told I was selfish I was told I was um, insensitive to my brother's needs. How dare you not call him and spend more time with him? The whole family was focused on, these adults are supposed to get lots of attention and that's your purpose. And what I wanted to do was have relationships with my nieces and nephews. So what happened? This was uh, what happened uh, the day I got home. I got a phone call from my nephew, who's 16 years old, in tears. He had been over at my mother's house His grandmother. And he had heard a two hour rampage by my mother about how unfair and unselfish I was to have not spent more time with my brothers. There was no acknowledgement of how the children were getting some focused attention. That wasn't that wasn't even important. What was important in, in, in my parents and my my brothers and sisters' viewpoint was pay attention to us. And what I realized was when when my nephew called me and he told me about this rampage of my mother, his grandmother, I realized in one moment there were three generations now of people having to learn about that very self-centered, sick message that children are in the world to meet the needs of adults. My nephew heard it, how dare your uncle not pay attention to his brothers. My mother evidently called my brothers and sisters because they heard about it as well. How dare Uncle Doug not pay attention to his brothers. And my own mother and father being upset about that. Three generations just like that. So part of my recovery now is having to realize there are parts of my family that I have to be a witness to watching this sickness continue. And then there's parts of my family I get to watch recovery. What I tend to forget in this process is my own recovery. I I went back and saw this with my family and and it wasn't until I got home that I realized I did really well when I was back there with all this. Thank God I had this program. Thank God I had the six years of recovery behind me to face that. Even a couple of years ago, had I come home from something like that, I think I would have spent months healing the wounds of that experience. A a few years ago, all it took was a phone call, and I would be in a a depression, and uh, I would be so upset about things I was hearing going on in my family. I would go home for visits and hear about my dad passing out in his own vomit at the lake home, and. You know, things like that. I'd go home for months and, and, and be so upset about that. What I, what I was so proud of and what I felt so good about on this trip is that when I got home, my life didn't have to be put on hold because all that's going on in Minnesota. My dad's still an alcoholic. They're still in denial about that illness. And what, what this program and what my recovery is about for me is not having my life controlled by their choices. I mean, why should I waste my life? Because other people choose to waste theirs. Or they're not ready yet. So I, I, I had to make some choices. Um, when I heard about this rampage my mother went on about me through other people, I was very hurt. We had spent After Christmas Eve, we'd spent time together with my parents. We really had a lovely time. We had a very nice time which is remarkable how you can turn those things on and off in a family we had a marvelous week and a half so I had no idea they felt this awful about what I had done until I got home and then I heard through my nephew how upset my mother was and I was so I, it was so shocking because on one hand I had this wonderful week of time together and on the other hand I hear about how angry and upset she was and they were and it's like what do I believe? do I believe what I see? Do I believe what I hear later? That's not directed towards me. What do I believe? And I was, I was so taken aback. Um, and I had I, I thoughts of, well, I can't, I can't have any relationship with my parents anymore. I, it, 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 I don't never know what to trust, what they say. And so I spent three weeks not answering the phone. That was the best conclusion I could come to, until I could get an idea of what this this what I was going to do in response to this, thank God I have an answering machine, I just—I screened every call until I could figure out what am I going to do. Before what I would do, I would have have called my parents right away and tried to solve the problem immediately um, when I was not ready to do that. And I used to do that several years ago. I used to provoke the family and provoke my own um, problems by trying to solve them before I was even ready to try to face them and so I felt good about giving myself some time to figure this out just because my mom had a fit and my dad had a fit doesn't mean I have to have my time schedule altered on how I'm going to deal with it so the best conclusion I came was just not answering the phone but two weeks later three weeks later I did contact my mother and talk with her about what I I felt and I decided I could only say one message only to her one message only and the message was why didn't you call and tell me yourself? Not, it's none of your business what I do with my brothers and sisters. How dare you go into a rampage about me in front of my nephew and how awful and abusive and self-centered that was. He was, he was hurt and very upset by that. I didn't want to say any of those things to her because what I realized was I used to provoke that continuation of problems in my family by bringing up too many problems at once when I tried to talk to them. And I decided the biggest thing I was heard about, the number one thing I was heard about, was that I heard about this from somebody else besides my mother. And so I, I had to tell her on the phone, literally about 20 different times in the conversation, but mom, you didn't call and tell me. But mom, you didn't call and tell me. Because she said, well, I was so angry. I was so hurt by what you did. I can't believe you ignored your brother. blah blah blah, All this sort of stuff. And all I kept on saying is, but mom, you could have called and told me. And I was, so, I was so confident after that because I, I, I didn't let her control the conversation, which is what I used to always do, let the person who was dysfunctional control the conversation rather than me really give a clear message of what I needed to say. And what I needed to say for me was that in my value system, the relationships that are important to me, I need to talk directly with that person when there's a problem, not hear it indirectly from somebody else. And whether that's my parent, whether it's my friend, whether it's a coworker, I don't care who they are, that's a value for me. So the conversation was about communicating my value, not trying to solve my mother's problem about how she felt about me. And that was so freeing now, when I talk about all this stuff, I'm not talking about alcoholism, I'm not talking about when well, my dad's still a practicing alcoholic, I'm not talking about all the drinking that went on over the holidays, you know, all of that went on. But what my recovery's about for me now is realizing there's a lot more issues going on once the deni- my denial about the alcoholism is over. The, uh, believe me, there's a lot of drinking and a lot of addiction going on in my family. But I've come to a point in my recovery where now I'm seeing on a much deeper level other sickness that I think would be going on whether my dad got sober or not. And it's very and it nobody told me that was gonna happen. (sighs) You know? It's like I would have liked somebody to have told me, you know, once you really get through the denial of the alcoholism, you're gonna see things that are really profoundly disturbing. And, and they're not necessarily all about alcoholism. I have a brother who physically abuses his children. I, I, I've had to watch. Uh, I, I, over the holidays, I've had to watch how they were so cruel to their children, verbally. And I know they physically abused them behind closed doors. I had a seven-year-old boy, my nephew Matthew, God bless his soul, who got a Nintendo game for Christmas and was so excited about it he had to show it to me. We're down playing Nintendo. It's in his basement bedroom. And five minutes into playing Nintendo, he looks up to me and he goes, you know, I have to put this in my closet at night because burglars may come in and rob me. And I looked at him and I said, Matt, do you worry that burglars are going to come in your house? And he said, oh yeah, my mom talks about that all the time. A, for a little seven-year-old guy to be worried about burglars in his house? I mean, seven-year-old kids aren't supposed to worry about stuff like that. We're supposed to, I don't know, we're supposed to worry about whether we get a high enough score on Nintendo. You know? <laughs> and I sat there and I thought, and, and I, just, I just saw that and I thought, my God, it's already happening to him. He's only seven years old. And it was, it was uh, I'll tell you another Matthew story. I, I was going to take Matthew to a play. I did take Matthew to a play. And uh, he'd never been to a live theater before. He didn't know people got on the stage and did things. He thought he only did that on television. Um, and we went to a, a, a play. And the night before, I get a call from his mother. And he says, she, this, is, this is how insidious it is in my family. This is my sister-in-law. She says, well, Matthew may not want to go to the play. And I said, well, how come? And she said, well, it's the car you're going to drive in. It snows in Minnesota. And, she said, and Matthew doesn't think the car you're going to drive in is safe enough on the ice. So I had to get Matthew on the phone and I had to say, Matthew, I'll drive really safe and, I'll, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And he wasn't going to go. We had this Camaro that's not good on ice in Minnesota. So I, 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 that night, I hustled around and got my sister's big Buick that he's driven in. He knows that he's familiar and he knows that it's safe in the snow. And we changed cars and did all this so Matthew would go to the play. And then I told Matthew this. And so then he agreed to go to the play. Now, what's sick about that is that if, 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 I wasn't in, uh, if I wasn't in recovery and out of denial, I would have made me believe that Matthew was really afraid of going in the car. Uh-uh. His mother was afraid of me driving her son, his, her son in the car. And she like convinces him. Now, on an even deeper level... I was breaking the family rule. I was taking him to a play, not them. And you know, I really thought part of it was they didn't want me to have an individual relationship with my nephew. They wanted it to be a group. We all got to be together. So I got into that play. And he was so cute. He's really socially deprived. We got into the theater and he wanted to go sit wherever he wanted to. He said, Can we sit there? And I took me like 15 minutes to tell the kid, no, our ticket tells us where we have to sit. And you know he just didn't understand. It was really cute. But I felt so good about sticking with it and, and keeping that I wanted to have a relationship with my nephew. And I don't care how sick and how crazy that family is, I'm going to have a relationship with my nephew. That's, that's for me. That's for him. I can't change the sickness in my family, but I can be a damn good uncle to my nieces and nephews. And and that's good enough. In fact that's really good. I don't need, I I've given up trying to change and and get the sickness changed in my family. All I'm gonna do is take damn good care of myself and let and and and, and be the way I need to be in my relationships and my family. And I believe through the will of God that that will have an impact on the people in my family. And I have several stories I want to tell you that I know that's true. About uh, three years ago, I was going to give a talk at a, um, uh, I had a job. I used to have a job where I would go and give talks at conferences. And I was going to go and give a talk at a conference in Washington, D.C. And my sister, who was in total denial at this point, she was, uh, about anything going on in her family, wanted to come and hear me talk. And it was in Washington, D.C. in February. So she was going to go from Minnesota to Washington, D.C. in February to come and hear me talk. Well, if you live in Minnesota, that's usually not the prime vacation spot, is Washington, D.C. in February. And, and, and also, of course, you now my family really is still in denial about um, what I do for a living because I'm a therapist and things like that. And they, they don't understand what that means. Anyway, so I was in Washington, D.C., I was going to give this talk, and it was Thanksgiving dinner. Um, I wasn't there. My sister was. And all, I guess my whole family was there. Nieces, nephews, uncles, aunt. The whole shebango was there. Like 20 people around Thanksgiving dinner table. And somehow it came up that my sister was going to come and hear me talk. Or go to, no, no. She, it came up that she was going to go to Washington, D.C. You know, and, and, and somebody at the table said, well, why are you going to Washington, D.C.? And my sister's heart started like, you know, pounding because the A word was going to come up. And and, he, and and then and so she said, well, you know, I, I'm going to go hear Doug talk, because my family knew I did that. And, uh, and, and then for somebody who's really in denial said, oh, what's he going to talk about?
1: <laughs> and,
0: and my sister kind of gulped, and she said, you know, children of alcoholics? And see how it feels in the room right now? That's exactly what happened at the table. There's like a... <gasps> And like in one-tenth of a second, everybody like panics. And then a second later, my mother did this, looks at my sister and goes, well, have you ever been to Washington before? (laughs) That's that's how quick denial works in a family. Now, what I wished I had was like a slow-motion camera to like video each person at the table and then put it on slow frame and then hook them up to like monitors on their brain and, and, and monitor each one of their thought processes in that one second. Because what I would have learned about is the whole denial system I, tr- I was trained under as a child. All these books we read, I would have I had it down pat. I would have learned everything I needed to know about my family in a tenth of a second. That's how denial works. My sister did come to Washington, D.C., by the way. Now, she was coming to hear her brother talk, by the way. It was a national conference on children of alcoholics. We grew up in the same family, but she was coming to hear her brother talk. (laughs) And so we're we're sitting in this uh, uh, general uh, conference thing at the very beginning, and Claudia Black was giving a talk, and I'm sitting next to my sister, and all of a sudden, these huge buckets of tears start coming out of her eyes. And I look over, and she looks at me, and she said, My God, Doug, I'm here for me. She had no, She knew it was a Children of Alcoholics conference. She knew her brother was going to get up and talk about something there. And she never connected that she was going to get something out of this for herself by being there. We were raised in the same family. That was when she learned at that conference that not only she was a child of an alcoholic, but she also learned she was a compulsive overeater at that conference. She went home, got in her own recovery program for OA, and three months later she calls me on the phone and says she admitted her daughter to an inpatient drug and alcohol treatment program. My niece. I say that story because I really believe that by taking care of my own recovery... And being just making my recovery available to people, God will take care of the rest. And I didn't set the agenda for when recovery would happen. I didn't strategize getting my sister to come to that conference. I didn't I didn't plot her recovery. And by not plotting her recovery, I let God do the rest by taking care of my recovery. My niece is now sober over two years in AA. Um, and uh, I, she graduated from high school a month after her year sobriety in AA. And I chose to go back for her year sobriety in AA, not her high school graduation. The family... <laughs> You you go to high school graduation ceremonies. You don't honor sobriety. Nobody understood why I was paying all this money to fly back to Minnesota to watch my niece get a cake at some meeting that ten people are at. You know, I just didn't understand that. To me, what I felt like, I was a witness to the first generation of, as far as I know, ever, 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 ever in the genes of my family, that this illness was being broken. Uh, That feels like uh, the earth moving to me. That's profound. What I also had to accept is it's okay that the rest of the people in my family didn't get it. But I broke another rule. You know, everybody else was at the high school graduation ceremony and Uncle Doug wasn't. wasn't that terrible. He doesn't care. I also went back this Christmas and also had to witness my 16-year-old niece who is in the throes of developing a serious drug and alcohol problem and had to witness all the denial around that that goes on in the family and what I had to continually keep track of the whole time I was there was just be a good uncle just be a good uncle don't worry about trying to be the fixer of her problem and so that's that's kind of where my recovery is at with my family and being uh, from that kind of a family background is I have, I have such a trust and faith in my own recovery as being enough it really is enough to do God's work and that I don't need to I don't need to be disappointed in my own recovery because it's not doing enough for the rest of my family and that's that's been hard for me and I don't know where you in the room are at as far as your own recovery but where I'm at I have to be comfortable with witnessing neglect and abuse and pain I have to be comfortable with witnessing the dysfunction that continues I have to be that has to be okay otherwise I I, I lose my family and I don't want to lose them and that's that's been a painful lesson for me and when I when I thought about I didn't know I was going to talk about this when I was asked to be a speaker at this conference. I didn't know I was going to have Christmas happen the way it did. But I, I was with a friend last night and she had just come home from a, this spiritual retreat weekend and it was all about the present and being the present. And I and I thought, no, I want to talk about where I'm at now. I have a story, but I, I wanted to talk about where I'm at today and how all of the issues we work on in recovery I have to practice and deal with on a daily basis and that's what recovery is about. It doesn't get easier in that sense. I just have to let go of expecting it to be easier. And then it's fine. Uh, I'll tell you a couple of other stories about the depths of denial in my family. I, uh, I was home about two years ago to visit my family. Oh th- no, this was this was the kind of went back. It was a year ago, uh, two years ago. Yes, it was when I went back to visit my niece for her AA sobriety. I took my grandmother out to lunch, my father's mother, out to lunch, who's eighty-some years old and and somewhat senile, but she remembers the past like it was today. And uh, I went out to take her out for a Sunday, which she loves. And we were sitting there and talking over lunch and one of you know I, you know how you hear things over and over again in your family that people say, well, my grandmother, we call her Nanny, Nanny's saying over and over again ever since I was a kid was, nobody knows how tough I had it. That's what my grandmother used to always say. I mean, all the time. And the family response was, oh, Nanny, you always complain. That's what everybody used to always say. Oh, Nanny, there goes Nanny again. Da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> well, we were out to lunch and my grandmother said, you know, Doug, nobody really knows how tough I had it. And I said to her, You know, Nanny, I don't. Why don't you tell me? And she did. She told me some fascinating things. She told me that my grandfather was an alcoholic. Nobody had ever told me that. I had to figure it out on my own. Uh, But she told me he was an alcoholic. She also told me he had affairs with women all throughout their marriage. She also told me that he had a child out of wedlock when my father was 12 years old in a small town of 600 people in rural Minnesota in 1938, that there was a paternity suit and he lost and had to pay child support for five years, that she would walk down the street daily and see her husband's daughter being raised by a waitress in a bar, that she lived in shame her whole life because when he finally died in 1948 it was the greatest relief of of her life. Because in her words, she put it, I finally knew where he was. And she cried. And because of her senility, she would interrupt herself as she was telling me this story and saying, Doug, why am I telling you this? And I'd say, Remember, Nanny, I asked you to. Oh, that's right. (laughs) And then she'd tell me more. It gave me a depth of understanding about my family that I never knew. Now imagine, my father was raised in that kind of a home. The healing I experienced about understanding my father because of that story was very profound for me. I was so angry with my father for years. Hearing that story finally made me realize he was a 12-year-old little kid once and he had to see some really sick things go on. That very same trip, my dad... Took out some pictures of him as a kid. I don't know why he was showing me these. And he was showing me pictures of a class picture of all. My dad grew up in a rural community, and so the class picture, all the kids were in dungarees. They were farmers, so they, they didn't wear any different clothes to school than they did to. They went home from school and worked on the farm. They didn't have such thing as school clothes. All these kids in dungarees, and then there was one kid in knickers and this bright outfit and a tie, and he looked like he was you know from another planet compared to these rest of these kids. And I said, oh, God, Dad, who is that? And he said, that was me. And I said, God, Nanny really made you dress up for the picture. And he said, oh, no, no. Nanny made me dress like that every day. And then my dad told me he had to quit school at ninth grade. because He couldn't handle the torment from the other kids he got. And he got his high school diploma through a correspondence school. So he wouldn't have to deal with other kids anymore. This is my father, the alcoholic. Now, what I used to do was try to have a therapy session at that moment. Seriously. I would try to like dig out every inch of pain he had and it would provoke him and he'd hate it and we'd end up having a fight. My recovery is about that's enough. He told me it and I didn't sit and oh, gee, dad, that must have been awful and, you know, all that kind of stuff because I had to realize my doing that was an attempt to try to heal him and I'm not in charge of his healing so I just listened and that was it by me asking questions that I don't know if anybody in the family has ever asked before I get to do my own healing without the motivation to be to heal them And, and, and I believe healing happens because of that I want to tell you about how I discovered I was a child of an alcoholic. We'll go back even six years. And it was, it was in February, actually. No, no, no. It was in January, uh, six years ago. Uh, I had some time elapsed after this event. I, was, I, uh, I worked as a uh, counselor at a teenage runaway shelter. And uh, I used to do like family therapy sessions with teenage girls and boys who run away from home. And I just finished this family session with this father and his daughter who were going to go home. She was going to go home the next day after running away. And the father, um, uh, I, I, I mentioned to the girl after the family session. I just mentioned off the cuff. I said, to uh, "Your dad is in a good mood tonight," and she looked up at me, nonplussed, didn't break stride, and said, "Well, that's because he was drunk." I didn't know it. I I just finished this therapy session with a drunk father, and didn't know it. And I I I felt so ashamed of myself. I. I felt terrible. I thought I was the worst person in the world. I thought if my boss found out, I'd get fired. I I just felt terrible. So I did what we all do at those moments, and that is I certainly didn't tell anybody. Um, And I didn't tell anybody for almost two months that that happened. The problem was, in that period after this event happened, all the kids that were running away from home had alcoholic parents now. Now, they didn't before, but now they did. And all these kids kept coming into the gatehouse who had, you know, alcoholic parents. And so I thought, well, i got to do something about this because I just didn't feel comfortable as a, as a therapist how to deal with that. So I went to a friend of mine who I knew was an Al-Anon at the time. And I, uh, I told her this awful story that I had done. And this was one of the... Well, she's one of the wisest women I've ever met. And she... I told her the whole story and she looked at me and... She didn't tell me to go to a conference and she didn't tell me to read a book and she didn't tell me to go to a workshop or anything like that and she just, she just looked at me and she said, Doug, what are your issues with alcohol? And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, tell me about alcohol in your family. And I started telling her about alcohol in my family and she'd interrupt me from time to time and she'd say, Doug, that's what alcoholics do. And then I'd tell her more and she'd say, Doug, that's what alcoholics do. That was the day I learned I was a child of an alcoholic. I was 26 years old. I had a master's degree. I was a licensed therapist. I'd gone through the entire chemical dependency training program at the University of Minnesota. I thought I was a bright guy. And I didn't know squat. (laughs) So that was the day I realized my dad was an alcoholic. It wasn't until a couple of months later that I realized I was a child of an alcoholic. I think they're two different things. I realized I was a child of an alcoholic when I realized, well, maybe because he did that, I do certain things. Or maybe because of his alcoholism, I live my life a certain way, or I think a certain way, or I feel a certain way about myself. I didn't make that connection right away. He needed to get sober, as far as I was concerned. So I came out of my denial about being a child of an alcoholic uh, and, and identifying as a child of an alcoholic in about April after that event. But I went to an Al-Anon meeting in February because I wanted to get my dad sober. And then, and then, of course, ACA meetings started. And that was six years ago. And in that six-year period, I've been a witness to a lot of healing for myself, a lot of healing for other people, I, uh, I think I, I do a lot better at my job because of this. I'm a lot more effective in my workplace because of this. I'll have a lot better friends. I've, I gave up many, many relationships as a result of my recovery. I ended an eight year relationship as a result of my recovery. I have a whole new set of friends. I had to start it, it, having the word God come up in my vocabulary from time to time, which never happened before. And, and so I, I sit here and, and, and think of six years later, how much happens in just six years. And I, I come here and giving a talk is, a, is, a, is an affirmation of, of my faith and that all I have to do is do the work. And the rest will happen. And I really believe that. And And I look for those reminders every day. Instead of looking for where I need to heal and where I need to fix, I look for the reminders of how that's already happening and just celebrate, enjoy it. My niece, Amy, who called me on... Uh, we, had, we have a very close relationship. This is the one who's recovering. And she called me on the phone Oh, a couple uh, after she heard this debacle that happened with my mother and her brother, and she called me. And and she told me, she said, "You know, Uncle Doug, I think everybody should have to go through recovery." <laughs> She's nineteen, and she said, "Don't you think we just let everybody should do that?" And then she said, "I'm so proud that my kids aren't going to have to go through what I went through." And when I hear things like that that is the celebration for me that's God talking in the world that's that's the healing and and what I want to celebrate is those events and not dwell on and commiserate on about my mother's sickness and my father's sickness and my sister's sick and my other sister's sickness and all the other kinds of illness that still goes on in my family I need to give attention to this incredible healing that goes on because that's the that's that's how I believe my relationship with God exists. It's like if I ignore that stuff, God's offended. It's like, Well you're you're ignoring my handiwork. Come on, give me a little attention here. And so it's like every time I acknowledge those moments of healing I feel like I'm 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 saying thank you to God. And and it it becomes a very spiritual experience for me. And I don't it's it's um, I, don't know, I don't know how else to put into words other than to say that. It's a, it's a very spiritual... And it's just a moment that lasts two seconds. It doesn't... You know, I don't stop in the middle of the day and go, oh, God, you know, and talk about it for an hour. It's a very quiet, peaceful, private clap, I guess. And, and that's enough. And that's that's how I improve my conscious contact with God. I've, I've made some vows this year that one of the ways I'm going to practice the principles in all my affairs is by being, as I said earlier, the best uncle I can be. I can't be those kids' parents. When, when my brother was taking his three children out of the house, I had this fantasy of going to the door and like blocking the door and saying, you can't take them. Take yourself, but don't take them. You know? I did. I did. And and I was like, it was I was I was sitting there debating should I do this or not? Is that codependent? You know that kind of stuff. And then I thought, I'm not their parent. I have to let those kids experience their relationship with their dad. Who am I to rob them of knowing who their dad is? That's their dad. That's who they got. But I'm their uncle. That's who they got. And so I'll be a good uncle. So I didn't go to the door, and I'm glad I didn't. I used to do stuff like that. Um, that uh, This was before I even knew I was a child of an alcoholic. One time, this is the denial stage. I was 19 in college, and I just started taking psychology classes, and I was learning about sickness, and I saw it everywhere, and I'm going to fix my family, and so. I went, we, I, we had like a little family reunion one time and, and, I, and I was working with my mother strategizing like let's have a big family discussion and we were like going to you know, have this big talk and, and we were all going to get in the living room and we were like five minutes away from this. Everybody knew. Okay, we're going to have a big talk and everybody got together. It didn't happen, thank God. But five minutes before the talk and up the road drive on a surprise visit. We hadn't seen these people for five years our neighbors that we used to be neighbors of in Sioux Falls, South Dakota when I was in junior high school and high school drove up on the spot visit just like that. Oh, we thought we'd drop in and say hi. I was... So, I, 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 at the moment they drove up I was really pissed because I thought, God, I mean, you know, we were finally going to fix this family and they drove up. <laughs> but when I look back on it now it's like God was in my life long before I knew He was in my life. Whoa. Because the way things worked in my family, I don't know if they worked this way in yours, the way they worked in my family is once it was interrupted, you never went back to it. So it was like as soon as they left after their hour visit, you know, we went back to our sickness and never got into the discussion. I remember as a child, in the middle of the, the, the emotional tirades that would go on about my mother being upset about my dad's drinking and then my dad hitting my mother and all that kind of stuff, we used to pray for the phone to ring. Because in my family, when the phone rang, I don't care if you were in the middle of a shooting match. The phone rang, and my mother was the one who answered it by God. No one else answered the phone. She'd pick it up and she'd go, Hello? And you'd think you were calling June Cleaver. I mean, she'd be in the, you know, there'd be this, this you know, crazy person. And then, Hello? and then she'd and she'd talk real nice and then she'd hang up the phone and it was over it we never went back to it the yelling stopped it was like it didn't happen now what i realize now is that was really crazy making like are they really mad or not you know like was it it was like what's real was was all that screaming and yelling real or was all that niceness real? Or is it both? Or What do they really feel? What's real here? And if all it takes is a phone call to change reality, That's, uh, it was very confusing. But it was also a relief at the same time. I used to, uh, uh, as a kid, one of the ways I survived is I used to go for what I called visits to the neighbor kids which it was a sabbatical so I would take sabbaticals from the craziness of my family and I'd either go for a single or a double a single was a Friday night overnight a Saturday was a double and I'd have the whole weekend away from home and that was one of the ways I survived and I'd stay at neighbors' houses and we, you know they, were, they didn't drink and they I mean they did all these things it was like it was, I couldn't believe families did this stuff and that was the way I kind of had my sanity was I'd escape I, I got punished greatly for that. I used to, My mother would ignore me for about the first six hours I got home after those sabbaticals because she took it very personally, like I was rejecting her. And of course I was, but I couldn't say that. Um, and, and of course my father was very unpredictable and, and things like that. So I remember one time in particular, I came home and I, I remembered this in an ACA meeting. Um, I, this was a memory that just came to me in a meeting. Um, I came home after a double. It was a particularly, evidently pleasant weekend. And I came home around Sunday, around the noon hour. I always knew to come home around Sunday, around the noon hour, because if I stayed longer, it would be like really bad news. Um, so I came home around the noon hour, walked in the house. And those of you who, who probably know this experience, you walk in the house and you know it just happened. The outburst, the, the awful scene, the, the violence. It just happened. Because I walked in the house and there was not a sound. And there was not a person to be found. And I walked into the kitchen and the kitchen table was overturned and they had evidently had tomato soup and soda crackers because they were all over the walls and, uh, uh, you know, meth uh, from the kitchen. And there was no one around. I didn't know where anybody was. And I did what I now realize was my way of coping with that is I cleaned the whole mess up. Everything. All by myself in the kitchen. I don't know where anybody was, mind you. I just cleaned it up. Um, and then I went and started looking for people after I cleaned it up. And f- you know how they kind of start meandering out after, I don't know, they kind of know the timeline. This least the way it was in my family. You didn't say, you know, coast is clear. They just kind of did it, you know. Um, but what I would, and, and, and honest to God, I, don't re- I did not remember this until I was like 28 years old that this had happened. What I remember most about that is that when the coast was clear, nobody mentioned that I cleaned up the mess nobody told me what happened and I knew better than to ask and we just kind of went about our day and to this day I have no idea what happened I don't know how the table got flipped over and to this day I doubt anybody knows I cleaned it up so I there was a period in my, in my recovery where I had to be open to those sorts of memories and it just went on and on and on. The memories that went on. That doesn't happen very much anymore, really. It, it's it sort of, it's it just sort of ended. I don't have a lot of those kinds of memories that I don't remember come back to me anymore. Um, but there was a period in my recovery when, when that happened a lot. What was painful for me at that time is I had no other brothers and sisters or anybody else I could talk to to say, "Did this really happen?" Now I have a sister who I, who is in recovery and I can talk to her about it. She doesn't remember that happening, which I'm also finding is, is real common. Is that I'll remember certain things that they don't remember. Or they'll remember things that I don't know that that ever happened. Um, And we've sat and debated about whether or not it really happened or not. But what I guess we realize is that some of us just aren't going to remember certain things and some of us remember other things. And that's normal. Um, So, yes. Okay, thank you. Oh, that's too bad. The potato bar's been canceled. (laughs) Wonder how the potatoes feel about that.
1: <laughs>
0: Anyways, it's tonight it's, Um I, I I feel like I'm working like trying to figure out things to say and I don't know if there's anything more I really came to say. Um, I I I just wanna trust that, that the words I had to say today um, are not just coming from me but I I say a little prayer when I'm sitting at the table down there right before I get up and I say "Um, God let me do your will today Um, and I I mean that Um, I I believe my experience is no more unique no more special than anybody else's Um, I just am here to be a voice for your own recovery Um, and I I think it's real important for me to say that take what you like and leave the rest Um, because that's all it is this is, this is my story this is, this is my recovery and this is my relationship with God and, and I believe this program is all about everybody being able to say that exact statement my relationship with God not the program not what somebody else thinks my relationship with God should be my relationship with God my relationship with my family my relationship with myself my relationship with my wounded child. I get to I get to make the rules, you know, and that doesn't mean a lot of people are going to like that, but I do get to make the rules, and with God's help, there'll be rules that I can live by. So, um, that's that's what I I came here to say, um, and I appreciate you listening, and uh, I want to.